All right, I'm going to start eating some of my ginger snaps. <laughs> I think I've had these too long to the point that where they don't snap anymore. But they say it is uh, zero grams of fat. It is very sweet. I don't, <laughs> I don't eat sugary stuff like this anymore. Mm. We all want to be healthy, right? People say you are what you eat. So it makes sense that if you eat a lot of fat, you're going to be fat. Let's talk about that. There was a time when folks were preaching that fat was bad for you. So everything became no fat or low fat, but it still tasted good and was good for you, supposedly. It started in the 80s and took us right into the 21st century. I was an adult in the 80s. This is Gary Taubes, journalist and author of a lot of books on nutrition. I lived through that era. And you know, there was a famous Time Magazine cover story, cholesterol, and now the bad news. And boy, the next day we're all on low-fat diets. Never ate an egg yolk again for, for 15 years. And it wasn't just the magazines telling us to eat low-fat foods. There was science to back it up and congressional guidelines that directed us to eat less fat. I mean, why wouldn't you? There was a lot of really good-tasting food that fell under that sweet, sweet category of low-fat. Dunkaroos, Gushers, Lunchables, Yoo-Hoo, that big, tall plastic container of cheese balls. Remember that? What about Gogurt and Bagel Bites? All of it. Delicious. Even things that sounded healthy like Fig Newtons and Nutri-Grain bars. Rich tasting outside. You'd never guess they were fat-free. Fat-free. So that's why they call them sweet rewards. And all of those fat-free cookies. I remember people would wait outside supermarkets. This is Marion Nessel, professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at NYU. For the Snackwell's trucks to come in and deliver those cookies and buy them and eat them by the package. Or dip them in low-fat milk. Unless you're drinking Sunny D or Kool-Aid. In many ways, it makes a lot of sense. Fat makes you fat. A slice of meat seems worse for you than like... The sort of iconic example is the low-fat yogurt that's, you know, 100 calories. Only 100 calories. But wait... If there's no fat, where are those calories coming from? If you were just remove fat from yogurt, you end up with basically bland, watery yogurt. So they replace it with high fructose corn syrup, which has also emerged in this time period. And now you've got a product that 50, 60% of the calories come from sugar, and it's marketed as a sort of heart-healthy diet food. And the world just exploded with these products. So you had this mass movement to, in effect, get Americans to eat low-fat foods and to produce low-fat foods that were then advertised as heart-healthy. And instead of making us healthier, somehow we just got sicker and sicker. High blood pressure, rising rates of obesity, a type 2 diabetes epidemic. Mm-mm-mm. Something was up. This just might be the biggest cheat we've seen yet. The sugar industry just straight up made up the entire idea of low-fat equals healthy. They got a bunch of support, all the while pouring more sugar into just about everything and lining their pockets. So, where did this idea that low-fat food was good for us come from? 
Well, it all started with heart attacks. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Let's start at the Cherry Hill Golf Course in southern Denver, Colorado. It's 1955, and President Dwight D. Eisenhower is doing what all presidents seem to do, golf. He's playing a decent game, but tires quickly and leaves the course to rest. The next morning, he wakes up with chest pains and is taken to the hospital. News of President Eisenhower's sudden illness, described by his doctors as coronary thrombosis, came as a severe shock to us all a.k.a. heart attack. He'd be in the hospital for seven weeks. They had no idea what was going on. They didn't know how to treat it. This is Professor Marion Nessel. My own father died of a heart attack in 1950, in part because they had no idea. At the start of the 20th century, heart disease wasn't really on the scene. In the early 1900s, American health officials were mainly focused on treating infectious diseases. You know, nasty things like pneumonia and tuberculosis. It was only after World War II that death rates from these illnesses started going down. Childhood mortality decreased, and things seemed like they were getting better, until people started dropping dead. Heart failure due to diseases of the arteries is the greatest single cause of death in the civilized world. And the scientists began looking for ways in which they could try to figure out what had changed in society in order to suddenly cause this epidemic of heart disease. Suddenly, heart disease was the leading killer of Americans, and it was affecting people who were young. And the two most obvious causes were cigarette smoking and diet. The tobacco industry was already gearing up for a furious defense. But that's for another episode. This public health urgency prompted organizations like the American Heart Association to raise awareness and funds for research, along with the newly formed National Institute of Health. The search for a cause and a solution was on. And by the mid-60s, there was a full-on fight between two theories about what caused heart disease. This one is an American hypothesis. It's all about saturated fat. We should eat less fat, more carbs. This is Gary Taubes. The other is a British hypothesis. It's all about sugar and refined flour. We should eat better quality carbohydrates, cut the sugar in our diet and less fat. And there we have it, a classic standoff. And each of these camps have a rep. For the Americans, the anti-fat folks, their guy hailed from Minnesota, the physiologist Ansel Keys, decorated with PhDs from both Berkeley and Cambridge. People describe him as the kind of man who doesn't suffer fools gladly. 
okay? But these kinds of people are often people who will define foolishness as holding any opinion different than their own, right? And his professional opinion at the time was that cholesterol, that fat-like, waxy substance that can clog your arteries, was the major factor for heart disease. He sees an association between fat consumption and cholesterol in the blood and heart disease, and he's assuming causality, which is a cardinal sin in science. But he keeps pushing it and pushing it. All right. This gets kind of confusing. Yeah, we're talking about fat, but there are different types of fat. So we're going to keep it simple. I'm talking about saturated fat. It's what you find in red meat, eggs, and dairy. And Keyes wanted to know if saturated fat raises cholesterol levels, and then if high cholesterol increases risk of heart disease. He was one of the first researchers to propose this. Now, his opponent, putting up a fight from across the pond, was physiologist John Yudkin. He's also got a PhD. He's founded the first dedicated academic nutrition program in London. His work was, I mean, he's a brilliant guy. And Yudkin has criticized Keyes, and already by the 1960s, they disliked each other. And while Keyes was on fat, Yudkin, who was also looking at rates of heart disease around the world, he noticed something different. High rates of heart disease also tracked with increased consumption of carbohydrates, specifically sugar. But the Americans, with Ansel Keyes at the helm, saw Yudkin and his competing hypothesis as a threat to their work. So when Yudkin published something about sugar and heart disease, Keyes would publicly attack the Brit's work and his reputation. Sounds like a hater to me. And at this point, Keyes was just punching down because in the aftermath of World War II, America was in a better position than a lot of other countries and was pretty much leading the charge on this particular research. And we become sort of the driving force in nutrition research in the world in the 1950s and 60s, mainly because We've got the funding available to do it, not necessarily because our the American researchers were the best scientists. And so Yudkin and other researchers also interested in the impact of sugar were excluded. They were pretty much boxed out. Which meant all eyes were on Keyes, who in 1958 started what will become a famous study in the field of diet-related research, the Seven Country Study. The participants the United States, Greece, Yugoslavia, Italy, the Netherlands, Finland, and Japan. All countries where Keyes already knew researchers. And so he put together this sort of massive study where they would all measure cholesterol. They would all use kind of the same methodology to study diets. And then they would follow them for 10 years and see what happened. And I'm sure you can guess the results. And lo and behold, it wasn't fat content to the diet that seemed to track with heart disease, but it was saturated fat. Just like Keyes had proposed. So the higher the saturated fat, the more likely these countries had heart disease. But that wasn't the only thing the study revealed. The other thing that tracked very well with heart disease was sugar consumption. But Keyes didn't believe that sugar was responsible, so he concluded that uh, using a sort of questionable statistical techniques that saturated fat was better associated with uh, heart disease. That was the conclusion. Since sugar didn't fit in with his hypothesis, he just overlooked it, which doesn't really sound right to me because that's not how research is supposed to go. Years after the study was published, researchers asked some important questions about the methodology like how the seven countries were chosen in the first place. Let's imagine that instead of Japan, 
which need very low fat diets and they have low levels of heart disease, he had chosen France or Switzerland where they eat very high fat diets and have low levels of heart disease. And in fact, in France and Switzerland, they eat high saturated fat diets because a lot of their calories come from cheese, from dairy products. So we can imagine that if you just swap out two low-fat countries for two high-fat countries, you get an entirely different answer or no answer at all because now completely washes out. Now, this isn't to say that all of the conclusions in the study were wrong or that Ansel Keys intentionally wanted to deceive people. Other researchers working in the same field were coming to the same conclusion. And they believed these findings were solid because they had evidence how strong the evidence is, we can argue about. Professor Marion Nessel. It was argued about at the time. It's certainly argued about now. But it was the best that was available at the time. And I think most people were convinced by it. And Ansel Keys stood by his hypothesis. Soon enough, everyone else stood with him too. He gets the American Heart Association on board by 1960s on the cover of Time magazine as the face of nutrition in America. And basically, by the mid-1960s, the reason the American sort of cardiology, nutrition, epidemiology world is focusing on saturated fat and more animal fats and, and cholesterol is because of Ansel Keys. And this is where we get into that tricky psychological phenomenon called groupthink, which happens in all our lives when a collection of people reach a consensus and want to do everything possible to maintain it. Just think about politics, religion, fashion trends, and unfortunately, yes, science too. Groupthink really dominates modern science. If you want to get a grant, your grant application will be reviewed by the NIH or other grant organizations by leading researchers in the field who will have become leading researchers because of their contributions to the conventional thinking. So if you're arguing that uh, the conventional thinking is wrong, these People who are reviewing your papers or reviewing your grant applications are very naturally going to think you're wrong. Other researchers continued to publish studies that implicated fat in coronary heart disease. Like in 1967, when a group of prominent Harvard researchers published two reviews in the very prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. They were reviews of the literature on diet and heart disease risk. And they showed a very clear correlation of sugars and fat to heart disease risk. The curves were identical. You couldn't tell them apart. Epidemiology is about correlation. It's not about causation. So they had a correlation between fat and between carbohydrates, mainly sugars, and they chose to focus. Their conclusion from those studies was that fat was the major factor. So a group of experts, these Harvard guys, reviewed other people's research to see if it held up. And they concluded that yes, Fat still seemed to be the major factor in heart disease. And even though there was some evidence for sugar in the studies, they too just ignored it. And the reason for that, I think, was because of the studies that one of the authors had done, which showed a very clear increase in heart disease risk from saturated fat in the diet. That's a correlation that still holds up. And so they ignored the carbohydrate. They thought that was something that didn't fit with the other data that they had. Another example of that groupthink problem, right? 
Well, in 2016, when a team of researchers at University of California, San Francisco, uncovered some secret documents about this particular Harvard review, it turns out something else was happening too. Those documents are absolutely shocking. I mean, absolutely shocking. More after the break. Before we get to the secret documents, we need to introduce the Sugar Research Foundation, or SRF, which was founded in 1943 as sort of an arm for the sugar industry. Yeah, it was an industry-funded foundation, and its goals were very clear. If there was any evidence that linked sugars to chronic disease risk of any kind, to cast doubt on that evidence. Starting in the 50s, the SRF put their money into a public information campaign to establish, quote, the facts concerning sugar and health. This meant funding scientific studies and reviews. Okay, so back to these researchers who found a box of secret documents in 2016. Those documents showed that the SRF had paid the Harvard researchers who did that big deal 1967 Harvard Lit Review, you know, the one that drove home fat as the problem. They paid them $6,500 about $50,000 in today's money. And the funding wasn't disclosed because it didn't have to be. That was before journals started requiring authors to reveal who had funded their studies and who they got money from that might be related to the study. So all of that was completely legitimate. Whoa, 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 whoa. You gotta be kidding me. Something about this just feels wrong. I mean, just because something is technically allowed doesn't mean it's always right. Just think about how people used to smoke indoors. And there was more. It wasn't just the secret funding. Because other papers in the box showed that the SRF was choosing the scientific studies for review, had communicated the result that they wanted, i.e. sugar is not the problem, and reviewed the final draft before it was published. When the sugar VP received it, he replied, Quote, let me assure you, this is quite what we had in mind, and we look forward to its appearance in print. No shit you look forward to it, because you're the one who paid for it. So, to make sure we're all clear here, the sugar industry was paying researchers to highlight science that worked in their favor. It's fat that's bad, and dismiss anything implicating sugar. Basically, they were cooking the damn books. The documents were so shocking, and it's so difficult to get that kind of information. The fact that they hit on a set of documents that revealed this kind of thing was just extraordinary. I mean, it's what you suspect, but you never see it. So there was some evidence that fat was a factor in heart disease. And the sugar industry is like, hey, this is an opportunity. Let's just ride this and keep framing fat. And as for the Harvard researchers, Even if that was the scientific consensus at the time, well, it's hard to argue that they were being objective. We know now that the funding bias occurs mainly in the way the research question is framed and in the way the research results are interpreted. And that the investigators often are completely unaware of their own biases that are brought on by industry funding. They don't recognize the bias. They think they're just doing science and that the science is is not influenced by this sort of thing. But there's so much research that shows that it is. And to be clear, a lot of researchers took industry funding. 
even our two main men, Ansel Keys and John Yudkin. But if there's some evidence to suggest that industry-funded results could be biased, what does it mean that these same researchers go on to work in spaces of influence? So there were a lot of conflicts of interest here. Some of them disclosed, some of them recognized, most of them not recognized. Speaking of some of these conflicts, one of the authors of the Harvard Lit Review was the founder of the Harvard Nutrition Department, which would accept hundreds of thousands of dollars in industry funding. Another author ended up advising a Senate committee on dietary goals for the U.S. that laid the groundwork for the first U.S. dietary guidelines, published in 1980, which said... Avoid too much fat, saturated fat, and cholesterol because you have a greater chance of having a heart attack. There was good reason to reduce fat intake. And the 1980 guidelines did include an instruction to avoid too much sugar. But they said that the main reason for that was because of tooth decay. They didn't link sugars to heart disease or cancer risk. Fat had successfully been framed as the bad guy. Sugar got off scot-free, at least for heart disease, and by the mid-1980s, this turned into a directive to the American people. The National Institutes of Health sort of declared a consensus that saturated fat, dietary fat, was a cause of heart disease. We should all eat low-fat diets. The government launched one of their administrators said to me it was a massive public health campaign basically getting Americans to eat low-fat diets. Boom. And just like that, we've got the creation of the low-fat diet. Well, let me say something first about why fat was considered the major factor. It was for good reasons and not so good reasons, looking back on it. The rationale was that if you reduced your fat, oh, this sounds so naive, I can hardly say it with a straight face, but it was what people thought at the time. The goal was to cut down on saturated fat. That was the risk factor for heart disease. But you couldn't expect the American public to understand the difference between saturated, unsaturated, and polyunsaturated fat. You know, that's where I think the big mistake was made. Oh, so you couldn't say eat less saturated fat, but you also couldn't say eat less meat. Because the meat industry would object, so they said eat less fat. It was a euphemism. And then the food industry said, okay, less fat, fine. We'll take the fat out. But we have to replace the calories with something. And they replaced the calories with sugar. And that was the Snackwell's phenomenon. No fat cookies advertised as no fat with the same number of calories, but those calories came from sugar. And that's where they screwed us. More after the break. The sugar industry is often compared to the tobacco industry, which also sold a product that was detrimental to people's health. But the strategy was a bit different. The sugar industry had a different challenge than the cigarette industry. The cigarette industry had a research community that was generating data that completely indicted cigarettes and, you know, as addictive substances that cause lung cancer. So the cigarette industry and the tobacco industry had to fund research that would somehow produce bogus results or bogus interpretations of the data and claim the opposite. So for the sugar industry, there was science to back up the claim that fat was bad for you. And there were scientists who had already decided to overlook sugar as a factor for heart disease. The sugar industry produced more studies that would continue to drive home the point that fat was bad. After that, 
All they needed to do was convince you, yeah you, me, and everybody else to buy it. This is where sugar and tobacco industry's tactics align. Aggressive PR campaigns. The sugar industry even got an award. The public relations industry's version of an Oscar for their public relations campaign, I think it was 1976, con convincing the American public that sugar was harmless. Ain't that sweet. Pun intended. I mean, you guys got to see some of these sugar campaigns from the 70s. They're pretty ridiculous, and I feel the need to share some of them with you so we all can stand in disbelief together. This first one, it says, If sugar is so fattening, how come so many kids are thin? What the hell are y'all talking about? So many kids are thin. Oh, my goodness. And then there's another one that says, Sugar can be the willpower you need to undereat. And there's a picture of a woman licking an ice cream cone with the caption that reads, Enjoy an ice cream cone shortly before lunch. Nobody really eats dessert before lunch. At least growing up, I'd get a whooping from my parents if I did. And then this one is a doozy. I'm going to ask you this. Have you guys ever heard of the fat time of day? Well, let me tell you about it. This ad says, The fat time of day is when you're really hungry and ready to eat and eat and eat. The message is coming from your turned up apostat. What the hell is an apostat? And it says, you can turn it down shortly before mealtime by snacking on something sweet. The sugar in a soft drink, a couple of cookies, or a candy bar turns into energy in minutes. By cutting your appetite and increasing your energy, sugar helps slip you past the fat time of day, the sweetest way possible. Sugar, only 18 calories per teaspoon, and it's all energy. What the hell are they talking about, yo? But what you have to understand is this was only the beginning because once sugar started to flood the market, it was soon added to everything. I, I'm going to guess sugar is in every ultra process or every processed food. Anything that comes in a package in the supermarket in the middle aisles, unless it's bottled water or you know, artificially sweetened beverages, probably going to have sugar in it. So although, and sugar has a lot of very, you know, uses other than just for sweetness, it gives it food longer shelf lives, protection against microorganisms, even bacon is often cured, you know, with sugar. When you're walking through the grocery store, getting your food, snacks, or drinks, it's hard to find something that doesn't have sugar in it. Just try picking up packages of food and checking out the ingredients. Stuff you'd never even guess, but it's there and it tastes good. So it's hard to stop eating it. We as humans love sweet things, and that is evolutionarily sound. There's a reason for that, and it relates to making sure that we consume the necessary energy to live. This is Dr. Dean Schillinger, a general internal medicine physician and professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. So we have built in us a strong desire for sweet things. In some cases, it may be something that we can get addicted to. What the added sugar industry, and in particular the sugar-sweetened beverage industry, has done is being well aware of this trait and having studied it in exquisite detail, created products across their portfolio and within each product that has ever-increasing amounts of added sugar in different forms so that we begin to consume some sugar, and then the next year we're consuming more sugar, and then 
By the end of a few years, we are consuming inordinate amounts of sugar, where you have children who have eaten well over their body weight in added sugar alone by the time they're, they're five. Dr. Schillinger has been a physician for about 30 years. When he started out, it was during the AIDS epidemic. But now he's facing a new public health crisis, one that spiked in recent decades. When I started as a physician in my primary care clinic in 1995, I'd say about one in 15 or so of my visits had to do with a patient with type 2 diabetes. Now, one in two of my patient visits are with patients who have type 2 diabetes. So there's type 1 and type 2. But let's focus on type 2 diabetes, which make up 95 to 98 percent of cases of diabetes around the world. You know, it's commonly stated that this is caused by a multiplicity of factors, and that certainly has some truth to it. We are more sedentary. You know, we're on the screens more. But the primary driver appears to be patterns of food and beverages that we consume now compared to 40, 50 years ago, particularly ultra-processed foods and foods and beverages that are high in added sugars. And this tracks with the diets patients report to Dr. Schillinger. They're often eating processed, sugary foods and drinks that are cheap, accessible, and taste really good. These foods are advertised as cool and healthy to eat, especially to kids, low-income communities, and communities of color. I mean, if you go to the store, think about how colorful all these cereal boxes and candy packages are. They look good, and they're cheap, and your kid just keeps nagging you about it. So why not get them? I think that's really where the cheating comes in, is the dangling of this fruit, this added sugar fruit, without acknowledging the health dangers that accompany it and without being willing to engage in any form of regulation, self-regulation or external regulation to ensure that people don't consume a disproportionate amounts of this unhealthy product. And the way you do that is by creating false narratives and appealing to our desire to be cool, our desire to be happy in the immediate term, and our desire to celebrate every day with family. Ah, and this brings us right back to the tobacco industry playbook again. Public health and the general public finally was able to fight back with powerful legislation and regulation because of, because of the problem of secondhand smoke, right? Your smoking harms me, so we have to regulate it. The, the food and beverage industry in this case has a similar culpability but it can hide behind the, the statement that, well, everybody needs to eat. People need to eat, right? And, you know, people will starve if they don't eat. So, therefore, we can do whatever the hell we want to do and put it under the guise of, well, it makes it less expensive so, you know, people aren't hungry. And that's what really needs to be challenged. Part of this story is not just understanding who did the cheating, but also who was cheated because it's a lot more than just a few people who are now wrestling with the financial, social, and health consequences of eating more sugar. And this brings us back to the rise of type 2 diabetes. I mean, it used to be called adult-onset diabetes, but more and more kids are diagnosed with it every day, and the impact it has on the body can be devastating. Virtually every organ in the body is affected by type 2 diabetes from the head to the toe. And I'll start from the head. It is a cause of strokes, which is part of a brain death that can lead to paralysis. It's a leading cause of blindness, 
that it can cause tooth loss, tooth decay, gum disease, Jeez. kidney failure. Dr. Schindlinger stayed true to his word, and he listed every way sugar wrecks the body from head to toe. But I do want to know one thing he says. Heart attacks are a very common problem. In fact, it's the number one cause of death in people with diabetes. Heart attacks. Hmm. Well, ain't that interesting. You know, Americans have a real hang-up about personal choice. Some people look at this and say, oh, if you only stop eating sugar, or if someone's sick, it's because they didn't take care of themselves. What they're not asking is, what role the sugar industry plays, or why this might be the only food some folks have access to. You see, choice is driven by information at your disposal. If the information is misleading, then your choices will follow. Even among scientific circles, I have this conversation where people say to me, oh no, it's the obesity that's causing the diabetes. It's not the sugar-sweetened beverage. And it's kind of jaw-dropping to hear. And I ask them, well, what's causing the obesity? And then they'll say, well, consumption of a lot of calories. I'm like, well, what's driving that? And so I think the industry has very successfully undermined the communication of the truth, not only to the general public, but also in the scientific and clinical community. And that, that's finally changing, but it's been a long time coming. But even if public opinion is starting to change, certain industry practices are staying the same. In 2016, Dr. Schillinger was part of a team that reviewed research studies over a period of 15 years that sought to answer the question, do sugar-sweetened beverages cause obesity, diabetes, and heart disease? And they found that half of these studies concluded sugary beverages do cause obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And the other half concluded they don't. It was split even. But upon further inspection, those studies that found that there was no causal association, that sugar-sweetened beverages do not cause markers of diabetes and obesity, nearly all of them, I think it was 95, 96% of them, were in some way funded by the beverage industry. In contrast, when we looked at those studies that found that there was a cause, they were all independently funded with no conflicts of interest. This kind of correlation where nearly every study that found it was not causal was funded by industry and nearly every study that found that they were causal were independently funded provided very clear evidence to us that the industry is manipulating the scientific process in very, very sophisticated and compelling ways to create controversy. And that creation of controversy has very significant public health implications because it significantly undermines any attempt to regulate added sugar consumption. Come on, man. It's the same shit as before. The sugar industry paying researchers to dismiss scientific findings that don't serve their interests. And as long as there's some science to validate sugar safety, then it's hard to make moves to regulate it. Good policy cannot move forward if there is this belief that, hey, we're not quite sure if these things are bad or not. And the sugar industry knows this, which is why they're still doing the same things they did before in order to maintain the narrative that sugar isn't bad for you, or at least that bad for you. They have a history and track record of creating false narratives that have legs. And it's up to the scientific community and the general public to uh, continually question those narratives. But it was within the scientific community that they found their opportunity to push this narrative that fat is bad in the first place. And very quickly, to the public, it became fact. 
this hypothesis grows over the years to become more and more dogmatic and more and more certain without ever generating the kind of experimental tests you would need to really believe it. And in the process, the idea that sugar could be the cause of obesity and diabetes and heart disease and hypertension and half a dozen other chronic diseases gets swept under the rug by the sugar industry and then left behind. Man, we didn't stand a chance. And while the tide is turning on sugar, this is what big-time cheaters do, ones with money, power, and influence. They make it almost impossible to stop the cheating once it started. Because, sure, the sugar industry first took advantage of science that was in their favor, but once it became inconvenient for them, they figured out a way to make it convenient. And that snowballed into a narrative, one that would change the course of the American diet and public health for decades to come. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. We play guess what it's going to smell like today. And some days it would smell like feet, like dirty feet. Some days it would smell like dirt. And then other days it would smell like, like straight river. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Julia Doyle. Hashtag boss chick. <laughs> the executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod.